everyone and welcome to a millennial learns thank you all so much for joining me today this is our thursday episode which means we are going over a state so today we are going over the state of georgia we go over the history the symbols all of that sort of thing if you're new to the podcast welcome we are going through the state each state in the united states um in the order that they join the union so uh, georgia is number four that we are reviewing today so they have quite the interesting history they were in the confederacy during the civil war um and it took a little bit during the reconstruction era um and now like i look back and say oh it took a little bit but actually they were one of the quickest reconstruction era states but it was still quite the process to like get back in the union and kind of all get on the same page again as you would imagine after a national civil war so let's go over the history and uh enjoy the episode Okay, I always like to go over some just basic facts about the state before we get into the history. So the capital is Atlanta. My voice keeps cracking, but I'm just going to keep going. The capital is Atlanta, Georgia. Um, That has now become like a very popular movie shooting city. So it's kind of like the Hollywood of the South, people like to say. Um, It became a state January 2nd, 1788. So it was... Again, the fourth state to join the Union after the Revolutionary War. It is named Georgia after the King of England, George, King George II. So King George, Georgia, there it is. State motto is wisdom, justice, and moderation. The nicknames, its official nickname is the Peach State. It's also called the Empire State of the South because, you know, during all of this, Civil War and Reconstruction time, um, it was really the hub. It was, you know, one of the biggest cities. It's right by the water. There's a dividing line between Florida and like the Carolinas, and it was kind of used as a buffer colony and buffer state as well, um, as we'll talk about in the history. The state song was adopted in 1979. It is sung by Ray Charles and the official state song is called Georgia on my mind. Now I believe like Ray didn't write Georgia on my mind. He sang it, but they adopted his version as the official version. The population as of 2020 was just over, it was 10.6 million people. And it, the state itself, the land area is just under 60,000 square miles. It is a pretty big area for a long time. It was the biggest state um, in the South. The only exception was Virginia, but then Virginia eventually split into West Virginia and Virginia. So that's a fun fact that I didn't know. Virginia used to be like the encapsulated land area of West Virginia and Virginia. I guess I had never exactly thought about it. So um, so it's pretty big. The climate, okay. So 
it's very it's a humid subtropical climate there's a decent amount of tornadoes and there's sometimes it's a little bit more rare but there's sometimes tropical cyclones there's very very mild winters but long and hot and humid summers the atlantic ocean is on the east coast so it's it's right on the east southern coast right above florida there are frequent afternoon thunderstorms especially in like spring summer and then there have been very severe droughts in the past there was a whole period of time where um, a drought really kind of wrecked a lot of the agriculture in georgia but um, i from what i can understand these severe droughts are very often there also have some tropical storms it's pretty rare that a, a hurricane will actually hit directly into georgia because it doesn't have a very long coastline so uh, usually it's kind of buffered by hitting some other states and then georgia gets the tropical storm downgrade of the hurricane okay and a little fun fact georgia is the number one producer of peanuts pecans and vidalia onions so um, those are my fun facts. Let's learn a little bit about the history of Georgia. So, before it was a state, obviously, as with like most states in America, uh, Native Americans were living here before European settlers. Now, the earliest Europeans in North America were actually the Spanish. So, we've been kind of reading about... Um, like the Swedes came a lot, the Dutch, but this is the first uh, your like exploration really by the Spanish that we've learned about in regards to a state. So the Spanish were the first people in Georgia. They didn't establish a permanent settlement. The only attempt to establish a settlement only lasted six weeks. It was in 1529 or 1526, and it was led by Lucas Vasco Vasquez de Alion. Dalon. <laughs> I don't know. It is Spanish and I really put a French twist on it just there. So um okay, so multiple other Spanish Spanish expeditions happened between about the mid fifteen hundreds to the sixteen sixties. There were a lot of missionary trips, and that was like the first introduction that Native Americans had to Catholicism, and it really played a big role in assimilating the natives into a more colonial system. So in the mid-1600s, English settlers from South Carolina traveled into northeast Georgia, so they traveled south into Georgia area, and that is where they started engaging in the slave trade of Native Americans. But then that wasn't as profitable as the deerskin trade, so more people shifted towards that. Okay, the first, like, idea of Georgia was it, it was conceived by James Oglethorpe and his notion for the colony was that Georgia was going to be a refuge for London's indebted prisoners that was the original idea except for none of the first settlers into Georgia were indebted prisoners but that was the idea the colony was actually established in 1732 and the purpose was a little more practical it was to protect South Carolina and the other South southern colonies from a Spanish invasion through Florida. So from what I have gathered, the Spanish were in Florida and they wanted to expand their land north and the English colonies were um, 
you know, the more northern colonies like up in America, and they wanted to expand south, or they at least didn't want to lose any of their land to the Spanish. So Georgia was supposed to be this buffer colony to really keep like the important colonies fine. So it was a protection uh, for South Carolina. So Georgia was the last of all the 13 British colonies, and it was the only one to be governed remotely. So there was, instead of having a governor in the state that was like a part of the colony, there was a board of trustees that ran the colony from London for the first 20 years, which would be honestly pretty tough. It was the only colony also to prohibit slavery from its inception. So it joined as a colony and slavery was not legal. They also had some other weird things that were illegal. Rum, lawyers, and Catholics were all not allowed. And I think the Catholics one, other than just, you know, Church of England Catholics, I think Catholicism was was so tied in with the Spanish, which were what they were trying to protect the other colonies from, that they thought, you know, if these Spanish Catholics get assimilated into Georgia, that would be bad. So let's just make Catholics illegal. Um, so rum was eventually legalized in 1742 and slavery was, it, it's very interesting that they entered in with slavery being illegal and then re legalized it in 1751. So kind of odd. Georgia switched to being governed by um, royally appoint appointed governors. So instead of that board of trustees, they switched and put um, governors, but they were all appointed by uh, England. And so that lasted from 1752 to 1776, and that whole system ended with the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. So Georgia ended up becoming a colony like over 50 years after the first colony. So it had the shortest colonial experience, the smallest population, and the least amount of development. There just wasn't a ton of time to get like an entire colony super developed because Again, like they came became a colony in 1732. Well, the first colony, Pennsylvania, became a colony in 1681. So it was over 50 years after uh, the first colony. So there was just not a lot of time um, to develop. So Georgia remained largely on the periphery of the Revolutionary War because of this, and they were not super involved with the war's like political and wartime action, this says. They also tended to sympathize with the British more than most colonies because they had been under royal rule the whole time and it had brought prosperity for a lot of the colonists. They, they didn't want to bite the hand that feeds them. They're like, you know what, we're under England. We've been under this royal rule and it hasn't been that bad, honestly. So they also desired the presence of British troops because they wanted to stem the threat of Indian attacks. So they were afraid of losing a lot of protection um, as part of the Revolutionary War. So while they officially sided with the war, a lot of the people in the state were more sympathetic towards the British. Okay, so here's where we get into the history once Georgia becomes a state. So 
Georgia as a colony was well represented at the Second Continental Congress. Three Georgians signed the Declaration of Independence. Those were Button, Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, and George Walton. There were two Georgians who signed the U.S. Constitution named Abraham Baldwin and William Few Jr. Again, it was the fourth state to ratify. And during the war, there were several uh, incursions into Florida. The most notable was the Siege of Savannah in 1779. This was the most serious military confrontation between British and American troops um, in the war in Florida. American troops, with help from the French, tried to free the city from its year-long occupation by British troops. So it was a struggle over who owned the city. In 1779, the capital was moved from Savannah, Georgia, to Augusta, Georgia. And shortly after, the, the Battle of Kettle Creek took place. Now, it is rumored that this woman who, well, she, her name was Nancy Hart, and she was rumored to have been in the Battle of Kettle Creek. So Nancy Hart was a female patriot and spy, and she was credited for killing several Tories in her home. So she apparently was at this battle in Florida. I mean, in Georgia. Um, okay, so Georgia's economy was coastal plantation-based, and they grew a lot of rice and sea island cotton. Now, in 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin during a visit to Catherine Green's plantation. Catherine Green is the wife of the military leader, Nathaniel Green. So when he was visiting there, he saw all the cotton stuff, and he made the cotton gin. Well, that invention, while it was probably very efficient and good for actual like processing cotton was very very bad um for a time there because it led to a super high concentration of slaves that were enslaved for the sole purpose of cotton cultivation using the cotton gin so it let them process so many more so much more cotton which means they needed more slaves and so that whole region really was dominated by slaves because they were using the cotton gin. Okay, um, the University of Georgia was established in a 1785 charter. It was the first university in the nation that was actually established by a state government, and doors didn't open until 16 years later, but it was established in 1785's charter. Okay, then there was a gold rush in North Georgia in the mountains there. And that was kind of all throughout the 1830s was this gold rush. So a lot of people went up there to try to find their fortune. And then there was something called the West, Wesleyan College. And that was established in 1836. Now, this is a very important college because this was the first degree granting women's college in the world. And that happened in Georgia. So in some ways, Georgia is like very progressive, or at least started out as progressive with like no slavery allowed. They're, they established the first college that gave degrees to women. They established the first state-run college. So like parts of Georgia's history are very progressive, but then parts of it are very not. Okay, so... This is where we get to part of the unfortunate part. The Native American presence in Georgia lasted for much longer than other states. There was, they kind of cohabitated longer than 
than in most colonies in early states, but ultimately there was a lot of conflicts and Georgia forcefully removed um, any Native Americans from the Northwestern Territory in 1839 to, or 1838 to 1839. This is what's known as the Trail of Tears. It was in Georgia. And this was no, it was known as the Trail of Tears because of all the, like how bad and how kind of traumatic it was to forcefully remove Indians from the Northwestern territories of Georgia. So I'm going to do a full podcast episode on the Trail of Tears because I do remember learning about it in school and how terrible it was. And so I'll be doing an episode on that. Okay, so in the 1830s, railroads started being constructed to connect all the major cities in Georgia, which were Athens, Augusta, Macon, and Savannah. That was in the 1830s that that it started. So by the 1850s, the state had more miles of rail lines than any other state in the South. And that's pretty much why it became that empire of the Southern states. It was a center point of the Civil War because it was so well connected. You could, it, there was so much infrastructure that had been built and the railroads were a big part of this. By 1860, Georgia was increasingly industrialized. It was known as, this is where it really got known as the Empire State of the South. It had the largest population and played a large part in the sec- secession. Um, and it also had the largest number of enslaved people. So combined, it had the largest number of both enslaved and enslavers, only second to Virginia, but Virginia ended up splitting in 1863. Um, but it did have the most, the highest number of enslaved people was in Georgia. So Georgia was the fifth state to secede from the Union. It happened on January 19th, 1861, which is my mom's birthday. So. <laughs> Georgia's secession and my mom are birthday twins, I guess. Um, States, uh, let's see. Okay, so the state had a lot of geographical diversity and dominance of non-slaveholding white males, which actually made the secession convention one of the most divided. So there were a lot of people against secession because, again, as we talked about in the Civil War podcast, history podcast which was my last one if you haven't listened to that go listen um we were talking about how most of the people that wanted to secede in these southern states were these huge wealthy plantation owners but for poor whites which there were a lot of them that like the rich plantation owners didn't have anything in common with the white poor people in the same state so a lot of those like a lot of people who didn't own a plantation, who didn't have money, did not want to secede from the union. They didn't want to fight for these rich people. They didn't want to risk their lives for the business interests of these rich plantation owners who eventually got an um, an exception from getting drafted because they owned too many slaves. Like the president of the Confederacy said, well, if you own 15 or more slaves, you don't actually have to get drafted, which made everyone else even more bitter. And so... It was just hard to get people to go fight. So there was a varied population. And so the um, secession convention was very heated and pretty divided. George's Howell Cobb presided over the Confederacy's organizing convention. Thomas R.R. Cobb was the primary author of the Confederate Constitution. Both of them were Georgians. Um, 
Alexander Steffens was a Georgian and he was the vice president of the Confederacy and Robert Toombs, also a Georgian, was the secretary of state. Okay, so the Civil War. Now, I just wanted to read this whole part because I thought it was very, very interesting. It said, the most decisive military incursion into the Deep South occurred during Union General William T. Sherman's campaign from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Atlanta in the spring and summer of 1864. The fall of Atlanta in September 1864, a major military and psychological setback to Confederate forces, secured U.S. President Abraham Lincoln's re-election less than two months later. Sherman's subsequent military campaign, known as the March to the Sea, was an equally devastating blow to the Southern morale, capped by the December occupation of Savannah, which Sherman, pres which Sherman presented to Lincoln as a Christmas present. Another distinguishing feature of the war in Georgia was the presence of the prison camp at Andersonville, the largest and most notorious of the Confederate prison camps. Andersonville became the source of much post-war propaganda and notoriety due to the high casualty rate among its prisoners and its commander, Swiss-born Henry Wirtz, became a scapegoat for Northern anger as the only Confederate executed for war crimes. Okay, so lots of drama happening in Georgia during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Okay, so let's talk about the Reconstruction period. Um, okay, post-war, the post-war period was filled with political tensions and struggles over federal occupation, racial violence. Um, and so I think it would be so hard to reconstruct after you literally just fought against your northern neighbors. Like, again, we're going to do a full reconstruction podcast but that would be so hard to bring that back together after you just lost a full war to people in your own country and now they have to take you back over. Okay, um, Freedmen's Bureau and the KKK both played a prominent role in Georgia as it did in a lot of other Southern states, but 460,000 slaves were freed in Georgia after the war. Sherman issued Field Order 15, which was a plan for land distribution to emancipated blacks. It never really came to fruition. Like, freed slaves were promised this land, and it never happened. And because it never happened, this is the origin of the term, you get 40 acres and a mule. So, um, that, was, that came from the Reconstruction period. Okay, I wanted to read this other snippet, and I'll link this full article below is very informative, but I wanted to read this little section. It says, another notable aspect of Georgia's reconstruction was the General Assembly's expulsion of the 1868 of 27 duly elected black Republican legislators. Despite the fact that Republicans then held both the governorship in Rufus Bullock and a majority in the state Senate. So this was the Georgia's assembly. So there were a lot of Republicans in office and they kicked him out. Okay, that action, along with the subsequent Camilla massacre, which left about a dozen black protesters dead and 30 wounded, led the U.S. Congress to reimpose military rule to the state and to ban Georgia's newly elected congressmen from taking their seats in the House of Representatives. This action provided a strong lesson in federal power to other Southerners <clears throat> who had hoped to subvert the federal law and constitutional amendments. So... <clears throat> the people or the representatives of Georgia, the, the government, really wanted zero federal 
government like because they were slave owners and they could just do whatever they wanted with their own human property they wanted like zero federal government and so they thought they were out here doing you know thinking that they could just even though they're back in the union or even though they're you know they're during this reconstruction period they thought that they could just do whatever they wanted still and so they were kicking out republicans who were black representatives and then there was like this whole massacre and you know the u.s was able to say no we actually have a federal government now and you can't be doing that so eventually georgia was the last state to be readmitted into the union in 1870. remember the war ended in 1865 so it took a full five years for them to be readmitted back to the union okay in late 1871 the state government returned to the full control of white conservative Democrats known as the Redeemers, thereby ushering in a term, thereby ushering in what the, what white Southerners once termed the redemption era. At that time, several other Southern states were still under Republic, Republican rule and military occupation and would remain so for up to five more years. So this is what I'm saying that the construction period, although it was the last state to join the union to re, be readmitted, it actually was turned back over to Georgians relatively quickly and pretty much the quickest of any Southern state. Other states would have to be under Southern rule, Republican rule, military occupation for up to five more years. And Georgia was given the green light to take back control of their state. Okay, then there was a group of politicians known as the Bourbon Triumvirate. It was like three guys that had power as governors or senators from 1872 to 1890 and they capitalized on their positions to industrialize the state and often for their own profit it says then um henry w grady he kind of led this crusade he was the editor of the atlanta constitution and he led a crusade to build a prosperous new south he laid out this whole vision about how prosperous atlanta was how industrialized it was all this stuff and apparently it was like pretty not lining up with the reality that georgia was like still rural and you know not like with no slaves their economy was taking a huge blow so some people, actually most farmers, still tried to survive as farmers just without any slaves, but obviously there was a huge blow to production with no slave labor. And it said that they were neglected by a government focused on industrial and business opportunities. They had no choice to participate in the tenant and crop lien systems. So that was where basically it imposed an exploitative and stifling credit system is how it's described it says by 1880 45 percent of georgia's farmers black and white have been driven into tenancy and by 1920 two-thirds of farmers worked on a land that they did not own most often as sharecroppers so these rich landowners would have all this land and then they would basically lend it out or they would just let you know farmers farm on the land without owning it take a big share of the profits and then the people who are actually farming did not tend to get that much money okay then there was the rise of the farmers alliance so the tenant system and the lien system led to the rise of the farmers alliance and the populist party 
and that allowed pro farmers to feel that they could protest the situation. So the Populist Party was officially formed in 1892. It was under a man named Thomas E. Watson. It was known for being racially inclusive, and black farmers were equally as encouraged to participate in the new movement. So that's what I'm saying, like Georgia is home for some very progressive movements, but then some people that were in Georgia were like hanging on tooth and nail to like the KKK, which we'll see here in a minute. So Watson ended up running on the populist ticket as the vice president, and it kind of fell apart when the Democrats, uh, the Democrats took some of the tenants of the populist party to run on, but eventually, like ultimately in that election, McKinley ended up winning who was the Republican candidate. So at the demise of the Populist Party, who was, again, racially inclusive, that caused the men in power, like the Southern Democrats, to try to curtail the political power of black voters. They didn't want this new Populist Party, who was all racially inclusive, to come in. The Southern Democrats wanted to put an end to that, and so they wanted to try to limit the power of black voters as much as possible. So they ended up formalizing the Convention of Social Segregation, now, this was like what was kind of happening, just, you know, just not, I wouldn't say naturally, but it was already occurring. It just was informal. Well, they formalized it. Then they added in 1908 an amendment that required literacy and property requirements to supplement the poll tax, which essentially, they talk about it barring uh, most blacks from voting, but it also barred a ton of poor whites from voting. So it was like universally bad for all poor people, regardless of race. That, also, that was also what mandated the social segregation. And okay, this is like where we get to the real dark part. I mean, it's all been kind of dark, slavery related wise, but there were more lynchings that took place in Georgia between 1889 and 1918 than anywhere else in America. There was a very violent three-day race riot in 1906. There was the lynching of Leo Frank, who was a Jew who was convicted of murdering a pencil factory worker. And there was a, the resurrection of the KKK. So the KKK had been active. They kind of went dormant for a while. They had an official like resurrection of the KKK on top of Stone Mountain, all of these things together really started tarnishing Georgia's reputation because the rest of the, the country by then was like well past this, especially in the North. Maybe Southern states were la lagging behind a little bit more like, you know, I haven't researched most of them yet. The th other three states that I've researched were all in the North, but like, you know, New Jersey barely had any slaves to begin with and then they eradicated it very quickly some northern states joined without slavery being you know so and then here is georgia like re um vitalizing the kkk so um that is not the best part of georgia's history for sure okay so then obviously a lot of um georgia's economy is still based on like cotton production but there was a bug called the boll weevil and it became a problem in 1915 led to a very sharp drop in cotton production because of this 400,000 residents mostly all black residents migrated north and about half the state's agricultural workers abandoned farming by 1930 as a result of this and as a result of the great depression and 
there being essentially no jobs because of the bull weevil in Georgia, Roosevelt created what is called the Agricultural Adjustment Administration in an attempt to raise crop prices. Now, how he did this was by lowering production, which actually put farmers out of work and even greater numbers of of farmers left agricultural altogether and rural communities really couldn't maintain their populations. Several Georgian towns attracted workers to textile mills, which is like how they kind of made it through the Great Depression. In 1923, Charles Lindbergh flew the first solo flight in Georgia and the Atlanta International Airport was also established in 1945. Okay, so entry into the world into World War II brought the Great Depression to an end in Georgia. There were a lot of industrial production jobs for the war effort. It created a ton of jobs. So the way that Georgia really became central in the in World War II and in the war effort was that Georgia trained a ton of soldiers in Fort Benning. So all the soldiers or maybe not all, but many soldiers would come to Fort Benning to get trained before they got shipped out. And then also B-29 planes were produced in Georgia as well. All right, now we have made it to the civil rights era. It says, as the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s unfolded, the interests, aims, and ambitions of Atlanta's political and economic leaders diverged dramatically in many ways from those that prevailed in the state at large. Oops, I totally scrolled too far in my notes. Okay. As the city's population surged, Atlanta voters chafed under the state's county unit system, which gave, for example, three rural counties with a combined population of 7,000, just as much clout in a statewide election as Fulton County with 550,000 inhabitants. The result was that the more radically moderate and economically progressive candidates generally favored by Atlantans had to fight an uphill battle against self-styled rustics and race baiters like Eugene Talmadge, who won the governorship four times in the 1930s and 40s without, as he bragged, ever campaigning in a county with streetcars. He dominated the state's political scene until he died as governor-elect in 1946, precipitating the bizarre and embarrassing three governors controversy. So in 1954, the Supreme Court... Okay, well, so let's just talk about that for a second. So yeah, so there was this system that gave equal weight to every county regardless of population. So these rural counties that were still owned by like Southern Democrats would run and get all these votes with only 7,000 people and basically cancel out the vote of the entire like city of Atlanta. So I think they eventually changed that system because that doesn't seem to happen anymore, but that's why the, you know, that's why Georgia seemed to lack behind or lag behind in its progressive measures. Okay, 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education Um, They said separate but equal was unconstitutional. And a lot of the people in power in Georgia actually wanted to close the schools instead of abiding by the rulings. They just said, we'd rather have no schools than an integrated school. But it would have been such a big blow on businesses that they eventually did integrate. It took until 1961 to actually integrate at University of Georgia. There were two students who were black who got admitted. And... You know, there were some protests and there were 
some bad things, but it went smoother overall than a lot of other states' integration did and a lot smoother than most people thought. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was from Georgia, and he made Georgia the center for his Southern Christian Leadership Conference. In 1965, voting rights, uh, there was the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was passed and signed by Lyndon B. Johnson, and it had great success. The number of registered black voters doubled between 1960 and 1970. So this is where the kind of shift happens between parties and platforms kind of thing. I don't, I'm not going to call it the switch. I don't think parties just switched here, but there's some nuances that we're going to get into in a whole podcast, but the Southern, Southern Democrats, there were some Southern Democrats who also favored the civil rights movement. And they started getting more votes. And then Georgia kind of shifted towards the Republican candidates. Again, we're going to talk about this whole dynamic later about the South Democrat-Republican dynamic. Um, But that's all kind of started happening in the 60s and 70s. Okay, Atlanta hosted the Olympics in 1996. And now there is a ton of tourism, a lot of industry. Like I said, a lot of movies are shot there. So Atlanta is a thriving and, and Georgia in general is thriving right now. Okay, let's go over. So that's the whole history of, of Georgia. Um, let's go over famous people. So here are some famous people from Georgia. Jimmy Carter, Ray Charles, Jackie Robinson, Julia Roberts, Martin Luther King Jr., who I mentioned, Kanye West, CeeLo Green, Jason Aldean, and Cam Newton. Okay, so a lot of people are actually from Georgia. State symbols, let's go over those really quickly. So the state bird is the brown thrasher. Apparently it's pretty big and it's the only thrasher to live primarily east of the Rockies. It does not have a state dog. So if you're listening to this in Georgia, you should start a petition to get a state dog. You do not have one. Um, State fish is the largemouth bass. The state butterfly is the eastern tiger swallowtail. Um, It flies from spring to fall and produces two to three broods. You can see those a lot in Georgia. They have two state mammals. One is the white-tailed deer and one is the the right whale, it's called. The state insect is the honeybee. The state crop is the peanut. The state flower is the Cherokee rose. Um, The state dance is the square dance. The state tree is the southern live oak. It is seen as a symbol of strength and it was used a lot for shipbuilding. And the state fruit is the peach. So lots and lots and lots of peaches in Georgia. My bucket list item, I used to have a bucket list item for each state. um, And this is really helping me to refine that. But my Georgia one was just eat like a peach pie and drink sweet tea. Like that's all I wanted to do in Georgia. Not because there's a lack of things to do. Just because that sounds like heaven and their peaches are probably so good. And I want to drink actual like Southern sweet tea. So I hope to go to Georgia sometime soon and do that. Okay, then I highlighted a few attractions. There's a lot more than this, but I just did five. So one of them is the Savannah Historic District. This is like downtown Savannah. There's really cool buildings of like very historic uh, sort of antebellum period houses. So that's cool to look at. Um, The Masters Golf Tournament is hosted in Georgia, so I added that one. There's the Appalachian Trail, which is also in Georgia. 
The very first Chick-fil-A was opened in Georgia, so you can go see that. And Coca-Cola was invented in Georgia, and so there's a full World of Coca-Cola museum. So my cousin actually just went there and toured it and sent pictures, and it looks awesome. I would love to go and see the whole thing. So that is Georgia, the history and the symbols and all of the fun facts about Georgia. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Leave, um, if you haven't already, make sure to go onto Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a review if you enjoyed it. Follow me on Instagram at Abby Rancor. And thank you all so much for listening to the history of Georgia. And if you have been there and you have other attractions or fun facts, do let me know and I will do a follow-up. So thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great weekend and I will see you on Monday. Bye.